deeds of the law. No flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the Okay, uh, just to let you know, we're going to go just a couple minutes longer than normal today. Uh, I walked in this morning and told Kathy Maggie, today is the most single most important message I have given to date in my life. And I mean that. She said, you say that every week. And, uh, and uh, so I, I said, no, but it truly is. This is something that I think is so vitally important to the Christian life, the Christian way. And um, I might say it every week, but at this point in my life, I'm really excited about it. And I want to leave you with two ideas before you leave here that you'll consider. And I'll give you what those two ideas are before we end this, uh, this week, so I, uh, this uh, morning. So I want to ask you something. Uh, how many of you, this is kind of rhetorical, uh, but how many of you truly in your life have an overall desire to really, truly, honestly, completely love others? Ask yourself that question. Some of you may say, I really don't have that in me. I, you know, I don't want to love everybody. And that's something you need to take up with God or a counselor, but, uh, some of you might be saying, yes, I really do want to. And we say that because we know that when we do, the Spirit manifests to itself that we're doing the work of God. That we are in God's will when we truly love others. So people will say that, right? Now, some of you have been with us a long time and um, you know I've gone through a number of changes. You've watched growth and you've watched me theologically change. All of them, I hope, have been because of access in the Word and the Spirit. And if it hasn't been because of the Word and Spirit, then hopefully those things don't stay long, that they will leave uh, because they're proven incorrect. So when I look back over the course of my life, I too, like you, like many of you, I have had an overall desire, truly, to love other people honestly and completely. Um, but in this realization, I've come to find out that 
in that desire to love as God loves others. I don't want to love others like I love others, but as God loves others, there are some things that get in the way. And these are in conflict or they are in opposition to our ability to actually, truly, honestly, genuinely love as God loves other people. And I thought about it, and for me, the first thing was culture. The culture I grew up in, both my family culture and the neighborhood and things like that, didn't allow me to love others. I was against this person and that group of people. Uh, I had problems with race. There was a lot of racism. You know, I grew up, my parents, East L.A. parents, and they had racial problems, and that carried over to me, and socioeconomic status, and cultures, and all kinds of stuff like that. So that, that got in the way of me actually truly being able to. It's not that I didn't want to, but I wasn't able to because of that, those things. And then there were failures in my flesh, which we all have. This is the big thing. This is what it means to be a Christian, is that our flesh doesn't want to necessarily really love others. We could be jealous of someone. We could be envious of someone. Uh, we could hate them because they've slighted us. We don't forgive them. All those Christian principles we talk about overcoming, they get in the way, they're in conflict with our desire to really love others. And the Spirit and access to the Word, which is why we get together to study the Word, helps us to get rid of this and to, to sort of start minimizing this stuff over time, and then hopefully our flesh won't be as powerful as it was in our life when we were younger in the faith, etc., etc. Then, believe it or not, the last vestige for me, I mean, my flesh still gets in the way, culture doesn't so much anymore, but the last thing in my faith, in my walk as a Christian, to truly meet that desire that's in me, is ironically, paradoxically, my Christian faith. It is the way I, in, I interpret what it means to be a good Christian. A Bible reader might understand this. There's a lot of things in the Bible that cause us to behave and not actually fulfill that love. There are things that you know, we read the Bible and Jesus said to love and we are commanded to love and we're told to love and that love is patient and love is kind and love is long-suffering and love is not boastful and it doesn't amplify itself and all these things. But there are a lot of other things that give a lot of Christians, myself included, the license to say non-love is justifiable in my life. I, by virtue of what's written in the book I study, tells me I don't have to love in this way. I can actually look down upon this. I can judge, condemn this group. And all you got to do is get on uh, social media and see the things, who are, uh, things people, Christian people post to know that they use the faith, they use our manual to justify themselves and not loving and therefore it's it's one of the biggest conflicts in opposition to the desire most of us have and in and through our religion itself that's based on christ we're able to say i don't care we do it by saying they're going to hell we do it by saying they are not believing right 
we do it by saying they are not living right. I, therefore, don't have to love them to the extent that my heart and my desires truly want to love other people. So with all that under the belt to start off with, we left off last week with Paul explaining the unity that should exist in the body of Christ. And he does this through an illustration where he appeals to the unity that exists in the members of the human body. And many parts in the human body, uh, extremely different parts, and so varied. The brain and its parts and what it's made of and what it does is so different than the flesh on my nose. It's so different. And yet, it's all part of one body. Uh, my heart muscle is so very different from the mucous membrane in my, under my tongue. So we have all sorts of really, really different parts in the human body. But we're all part of that same body. And Paul says, look it, you've got to love each other, accept each other, and get along. I mean, freakishly diverse uh, components of the human body. And I mean, if we personified the human body today, if you were able to suddenly become the part of a human body that you are in your personality, suddenly, boom, you're the heart, you're a lung, you're a finger, you're a toe, boom, you're there. If we were in the same room, we would go at war against each other really quickly because we are so diverse in the way we are made as uh, uh, personified members of the body. Paul explains that within these parts, all of them, there should be love. There should be appreciation. There should be a concern for the other parts of the body. So much so that when he says, when one part is exalted, the other part uh, should rejoice. And then when one part is injured, the other parts should mourn. This is, a, this is a repetition of last week. And I haven't experienced that in my Christian life. I've experienced and I've personally justified, personally justified, as recently as maybe a few weeks ago on the show we do on Tuesday night. Division, attacks, warfare against other members of the body. Um, I'm not alone in this. Looking back over Christian history, the, the only parts that I see actually getting along are all the arm muscles get along and all the skin on the leg gets along and all the bones in the ear get along and all the whatever in the brain get along. But I don't see, looking at Christian history, the getting along. I see the opposite I, in fact, I have never, if you look at church history, it sucks. If you look at church history today, if you look at the present existence today, it sucks. There's a reason for this, and I haven't been able to get it or understand. So this teaching has led me, first of all, to look in the mirror and see guilt. And, and I don't readily take guilt until I'm convinced that I'm wrong. I mean, I fight against it, right? And I see guilt 
that I thought I had the right, maybe the call, which I said, to be critical of other parts of the body I just don't understand or want to accept. I have not accepted them. And I have openly and critically challenged them. And I today, before we get deep into it, repent. I use that word, change my mind, before everybody here and anybody of the ministry, the show, I repent today for the error of my ways. And I believed in honesty, I should have been critical. I thought it was okay for the ear to say, hand, you are, you are wrong. And I did it because of how I was interpreting the book that I read by the Spirit. The desire to really love and let go was there, but my, also my conflict on doing what was right was there too. And I had to somehow figure out, why is this constantly at me? What is, I want to really love everybody and let them freely be, but when I see something that I think is wrong, I think I have the right and the license to attack. So I seek your forgiveness and the forgiveness of those that I have maligned and been openly critical of, even though I believe I, I, I had good reason. And this includes rock concert Christianity and tithe-demanding pastors and mega churches and Mormons. Yes, Mormons. Jehovah's Witnesses. Seventh-day Adventists. Catholics. I was wrong. It's taken God several decades and some of you have witnessed this over time. Uh, some people call it a, a de-evolution or a digression. Some people call it maturity. I don't know what you want to call it, but I'm just telling you, it's taken him decades to get me to the point where I am now, at least from my heart and my mind, convinced I don't have the right to say anything against anyone who lays claim to a faith in God. I will not do it again in any shape, sense, or fashion so that I can step from this side of the board over to that side and actually really live what has been in my heart for a long time, like it's in your heart, but I haven't been able to do it. And the biggest reason, besides my flesh and just being weak, is that last paradoxical reason. I believe I was justified in the faith to act in non-loving ways. And when I talk about love, I'm talking about how the New Testament describes love. I'm not talking about all the other. I'm talking about how it is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the next chapter we get to. So hand in hand with this observation of my need to personally change, I have simultaneously, paradoxically, wondered for decades why Christianity is so at each other's throat. And six years ago, God took me by the hand and he started to show me his word from a different perspective. And he started to show me how to see his word in a different way. And while on this tour, he taught me to understand scripture in ways that aren't traditionally accepted, uh, though those ways are not unique to me and I didn't originate them, that's how it's worked. 
Now, I have asked and invited many of you here, uh, and those of you who are at home, to join with me as I express the results of these tours. Uh, and in sharing them with you, I hope to finally answer why we have such a sordid history in Christianity. Why we have, for instance, as radical as this is, decided to hate on people who claim and try to follow Christ Jesus in a way that's different than ours. Very different than ours. We, we attack them. We say they are going to hell. We attack our families. We attack our neighbors with all sorts of rhetoric about how wrong they are and therefore we can treat them not as our own, not as part of a body that is Christ. So uh, today I invite all within the sound of my voice and in the name of Christ Jesus to actually see if you can step over to the place where you can live to the content of your heart to love all people all the time, every time, without exception. Now, those of you who attend campus know that we've been in 1 Corinthians in our milk, and we've been in 2 Corinthians in the meat study. You also know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, Paul has been talking about spiritual gifts that were present in the church in that day. Okay. 12 is where we're in. We're wrapping it up today. 13 is that chapter on Christian love. And 14 is a chapter devoted specifically to the speaking in tongues. All spiritual gifts present in the church today. And there are some Christians who say they're not present today. There are some Christians who say they are. John MacArthur says they're not. Charismatics say they are. I don't care. Whatever they are. You want them to be, they are. You don't, they aren't. Okay? But that's where the spectrum when it comes to spiritual gifts. In chapter 12, Paul has given us a number of them. 13 is love, 14 tongues. And again last week, he wrote, Paul wrote about how there are a diversity of gifts, but they're all the same spirit. They all come from the same spirit. That spirit speaks to Christ. That spirit calls to love. If the Spirit is calling to love, that is of the same Spirit that causes to speak in tongues and the same Spirit that causes to prophesy and the same Spirit that gives people gifts to spiritually teach things, that Spirit is the same, okay? So we ended at verse 26 where Paul says, And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. From this point, at verse 27, Paul now moves us deeper into this place, and he speaks practically. And he reminds his reader there in Corinth of the makeup of the church at that day. And he says, now, at verse 27, you are the body of Christ and members in particular. I want you to ask yourself, do we have the right to say, you are of the body of Christ, but you're not? Do, does anyone have that right to look at someone else who says, I believe in Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior and say, you're not part of the body of Christ? If we do, and I've been guilty of that, not directly, but sort of, if we do, 
We are like the ear that says to the foot, you don't belong. The ear cannot fathom what a foot is. And so it says you could not possibly be part of it. The question I have for us today is, one, is that our job? Is that ever our job? I don't think so. So Paul says, you are the body of Christ, members in particular. In the springboarding office, he adds, and God has set some in the church, first apostles, second prophets, thirdly teachers, and then he says, after that, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversity of tongues. And he asks, <coughs> are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, having all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? And then he concludes with this, but covet earnestly the best gifts, ready for this now, and yet, and yet, I show unto you a more excellent way. Okay? He set up the stage for spiritual gifts at the church at Corinth. He says, you're all the body and you all are different parts. But then he wraps that whole chapter up and he says, and yet, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Because we are faithful to verse-by-verse -verse analysis here, jump back to 27. We'll quickly work through it. Now, you are the body of Christ and members in particular. Notice the emphasis from Paul. Now, you are the body of Christ, he says to them. And you are members specifically or in particular. You have your role. He is continuing the allusion to the human body here. And he brings it all back to the body having one common head, Christ Jesus. He's the head of his body. He gives the direction. He knows who are in his body and he knows parts that are not. And he is the one who understands as the mind of the body, the head of the body, right? And he says, listen, you're all under the influence of Christ. All under the influence of Christ. Okay? And then he says, and, get ready, and God has set some in the church First apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers, and after that miracles and gifts of healing, helps, government, diversity of tongues. This is a bit confusing because in the midst of talking about spiritual gifts, he now introduces what he says, and God has set some. That word set some is tithemi in the Greek, and tithemi means he has called or appointed some of you in the body to be apostles first, prophets second, teachers third, and then he goes on and he lists some more spiritual gifts. Because he has done this, many people think that being an apostle or a prophet or a teacher is a spiritual gift, and they include that in the giftings of the Spirit uh, that are in the New Testament. But that's beside the point. In other words, God wanted all these things that Paul calls the ecclesia of the day, the gathering of, in the body of that day, and that word means ecclesia, the called out. In our day, Paul says, some of you have been called out to be part of this body and you're going to serve in different functions. And he says, some, some there. He says, some, God has set some in the church to do these different things in that day. Not all, but some. How does he describe them? First, he says, apostles. Second, prophets. Thirdly, teachers. After that, miracles, gifting of healings, helps, government, diversity of tongues. I don't think it's by accident that Paul gives us three things there. First, first he says, that's proton in the Greek. It's in the text, so it's not like someone's making that up. First, proton apostles. 
he names them as number one in the church of that day, okay? We don't have them today. We're talking about a different church, I'm just telling you. It's the same body, but it's a different church. We don't have them today the way those apostles were then. Yet Paul here says, first proton apostles. Those who were eyewitnesses of Christ, those who were trained by Christ, those who said he was resurrected, and those who were killed for it except for John, though they tried to kill him. Those are the working definitions of an apostle in the New Testament church of that day. So he says, first proton, we have apostles, and then deuteros, we have prophets, and then tritos, we have teachers. This is the order of what we have today working in these gifts. Now, it's interesting, just as a side note, the Mormons in some of their literature, when they talk about things, they put prophets first. They reverse those two. Prophets and apostles. I used to teach that as a missionary for the Mormon church. We have prophets and apostles and teachers. And, and, and I never realized that they do a flip on that. Of what, what Paul says is proton, deuteros, and, and tritos. They say the, the prophet is proton. That's not what Paul says. He says, first we have uh, 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 apostles. In this, mature, in this material church that was apostolically led and guided and waiting for Jesus to come back and take his church from that day and age, his pure bride, we have apostles, prophets, and teachers. And uh, we have to ask ourselves a question, and I ask it a lot. I'm not going to talk on it today, but you have to ask yourself, are we still waiting for Jesus to come back and take his church? If we are, then what Paul says here has some merit, and we ought to still be under that blanket, that, that umbrella. We still ought to be, because it's still his church, it's still his bride, and he's still coming back to get it. If we're not, then it's a different subject, that she was taken up, she was saved from destruction, she was saved from the gates of hell, not uh, prevailing against her, because there were apostles on the earth guiding her, that church was taken. It is governing in the uh, New Jerusalem on high, but now we have his body filling the earth more and more and more as people come to Christ. So I believe that that has happened. Others are, most of Christianity is still waiting for him to come back and take his church, ignoring the fact of many things in what we call the New Testament, okay? So the implications are innumerable if he has already taken his bride away ensuring that the gates of hell would not prevail against her. But it seems that most believers today were still operating on the idea that we are, in fact, still in that age Paul talks about. And therefore, we are still required to apply and interpret what's written in the book called the New Testament by Paul and Peter and John as, as though they were still governing us, as they were still governing us through their written words. More on this in a minute. Paul adds, secondarily, prophets... Uh, Paul uses a term here, and it seems to be referring to those who say this is coming in the future. In, the, in this new, uh, uh, what we call the New Testament, he's saying these people, men and women, who say this is coming in the future. And we have examples of prophets in that New uh, Testament writing where they did say a famine or a drought is coming in the future, and it did. So uh, we might wonder why Paul mixed these three appointments in of apostles and prophets and teachers in his talk about spiritual gifts. I have to cover this because we do verse by verse. And I would suggest that Paul, when he has been talking about spiritual gifts, and now he says, and God has set in the church apostles first, that I think he's saying the apostles then had most of the spiritual gifts, all the spiritual gifts, or the majority of. Prophets have the second amount of these spiritual gifts. 
Teachers have the third amount of these spiritual gifts that are in operation here. And that's why he gives us this chronological order. In other words, the apostles had access to most of the spiritual gifts to govern the church. The prophets had access to some more. The teachers had less or uh, more. And then after this, he says, to those who were not appointed by God, who were not set by God in the church, there are those who work that of miracles, he says. This is a separate group from the uh, prophets, the, the apostles, prophets, and teachers. Those who work miracles. And interestingly, the King James translates that to miracles when the word is dunamis, and it means those who have power. And then presumably he's referring to those who are working miracles. And then he mentions the gift of healings. We note here that he mentions miracles separate from the gift of healings. He does this often in talking about spiritual gifts. So in miracles, he's talking about miracles like parting the Red Sea. The gift of healings is directly related to healing people through prayer and faith. But they are separated constantly in talking about spiritual gifts in this record. And we talked about, he writes helps here. That word doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. And he writes governments here. And it just means what they say. Those people in the, in the church at that time who were called to help and those who were called to govern. And then he finally says, and diversity of tongues, meaning those who are empowered. And this is the contextual stance on tongues in the church to speak another language they haven't studied by the spirit and someone who knows that language to interpret it. That's the biblical understanding of tongues. It's another language, real language. At this point, after reiterating the spiritual gifts and naming those appointees who had them, Paul asks in verse 29 and 30, are all apostles, going back to his point of unity, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of uh, miracles, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? And this line of questioning seems to be referring indirectly to his point of we need to be unified no matter what you are doing in the church, uh, bride church of our day, the Paul the Apostle tells them in a letter, you need to be unified and love each other no matter what you're called or set to do. And then we get to that final line, which is tremendously important. Covet earnestly the best gifts, he tells them in his letter that in the introduction he says this is to the believers at Corinth. Covet earnestly the best gifts, he says. And yet, I want to show you a more excellent way. The book of Hebrews constantly uses the word better. It talks about what God established in the old uh, covenant. And then it says, but there's a better way that's come. There's a contrasting between what was and a better way. Paul is doing the same thing here. He says, I've talked to you about the spiritual gifts that are present in the church bride in our day and age, but I want to talk to you and yet about a more excellent way. The word for covet earnestly, covet earnestly the best gifts means have zeal after them. And some scholars believe that Paul wrote that in the indicative mood with some support. Because in the Syriac translation of the Bible, it says, because you are zealous of the best gifts, I will show you a more excellent way. Meaning because you are so, you are so focused on getting some of these, I want to show you a more excellent way that will help decrease the disunity that's in the body. Always kick back against these interpretations. Uh, but Paul has, is, is setting it up through these letters to the Gentiles. That's why, by the way, as a sideline, there's one apostle called to the Gentiles, 
just one. Because it had, he was prepared to teach them how to understand all this stuff. If, you, if, if God brought in several, like he did to the Jews, to reach the Jewish nation with the good news, if he brought in several apostles to reach the Gentiles, there would be differences of opinion. And we would have had denominationalism from the start. So God called one guy, Paul, and he let him be over the teaching and outreach and the writings to the Gentiles so that they could be of one mind and one unity. You got that? In the end, we note that Paul did not attempt to repress the presence of these spiritual gifts in the church bride. He didn't say it's wrong to desire them. He said covet earnestly. He showed them that in the church bride or church body, all members are important, that the gifts of the Spirit are important. But he winds up mentioning after these specific appointments, yes, we have these gifts. Yes, there are apostles. Yes, there are prophets. Yes, yes, yes to all of that. And yet... And yet, that is so vitally important. And yet, I want to show you a more excellent way. I would suggest we have taken that more excellent way and we have set it aside in part. And we have done that for 1,800 years, 2000, nearly 2,000 years. That's that excellent way that's written on our hearts that says, I should love, but I'm letting things get in the way of that love. Paul here says, I want to show you a more excellent way of evidencing this unity with each other, okay? In spite of all I've said and despite all the value of these spiritual gifts, in the face of apostles, in the face of prophets, in the face of teachers, really important appointments that God has made, yet I show you a more excellent way and he steps into 1 Corinthians 13, which is the chapter on Christian love. That is the more excellent way. This is religion. This is the more excellent way. Stay with me. The word for more excellent way is hyperbole, where we get the English word hyperbole. It means to throw beyond. Hooperbole would be like this. There's a 12-year-old standing right here, and he says, throw me the ball. And I am the, uh, the quarterback for, I'm Tom Brady. And I throw the ball 90 yards over his head that way. That's hooperbole. He says, Give me the ball. If I was to throw it like that, I would be giving him what Paul was talking about in chapter 12. But the more excellent way would be for me to Tom Brady and throw it 90 yards over this kid's head to show you how much better this way is from just getting it to him. Okay? More Hooper Bole. And we are led right into the Hooper Bole way, which is love for all people at all times, everywhere, as described in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Not how we interpret love. Not to say it's loving by ostracizing, getting angry with, Reproving be times with sharpness. Not the stuff we make up. 
It's the way 1 Corinthians 13 describes the Hooperbole way, because that's all right in it. Now, before we enter into chapter 13, which is going to be next week, I'm going to share with you some concepts I covered in meat. It will be a repetition for some who were in meat last week. Uh, but it's so important to our solution to the infighting that has been existing in the faith for nearly 2,000 years. What I'm about to share will rock the very foundation of what most organized religions have been doing for at least 500 years, if not 2,000. And, but it's so vitally and strongly supported by Scripture, by Scripture, that even by the Apostle Paul, that I have to teach it this way. And you must then decide as you walk out, do I accept it? And if you do accept it, I'm going to give you a challenge. That's one of the two things I want you to remember at the end. If you accept it, it will be this challenge that's coming. So I think to accept it, you can, I can, by the Spirit, rise above all of this and truly meet the desires that we have in our hearts. I think that we can do that if you're willing. Uh, if you don't, I believe if you stick to what has always been, you will forever struggle to be able to do this. And I think the scripture is going to tell us why. Now, I am going to propose to you that God knew this about us. And so he planned this out of what it would be like in our day. And he says this in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 31. Now, just remember this. When God speaks of the house of Israel, Paul also writes of the house of Israel that we are all Jews, not because we've been circumcised in the flesh, but because we've been circumcised in the heart. So when we read about Israel, it's talking about anyone who is God's that has had their heart circumcised. So when he speaks of in this day, just remember, it's talking about you too and not just Jews. This is what it says in Jeremiah 31. Behold, God says, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. I will make a new covenant. We translate that to a new testament. But God says, I will make that a new covenant with the house of Israel and those of the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Not the same covenant when I gave them the law. Not that covenant where I wrote my laws in stone. This is going to be a new covenant. And he says, which my covenant they broke. They broke those laws. Although uh, I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the testament the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, that includes Gentiles who are adopted in by faith, after those days, saith the Lord, after those days, I, you ready for the New Testament? The New Testament, I will put my laws in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. How do we know him? I will write my laws in their hearts. And God is love and his laws are love. The two great commandments hang upon love. I in that day will write that on their hearts. 
He says, From the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. So the question again is, are we waiting? Are you waiting for that day to come when God will do this? Because if you are, you're still under the former covenant that Moses brought down from the mount. Or are you in that age when God said, I will give you a new testament? And that new testament will be, oh, I will write it on your heart. Which one is it? You have to decide. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is writing to the believers at Corinth a second letter. Could be a third. And he begins by saying that though it was the custom of the day to write letters of recommendation to go with the apostles and to go with the other believers then, it was the custom of the day that he didn't think that was necessary in his case or in the case of believers. He simply says, listen, I think that I'm more inclined to let people see my powerful works from the Spirit and my reputation and to let you speak as, as disciples of what I've shared with you as an epistle. I don't need letters of recommendation written in stone, written in ink, uh, written on paper. I don't need that. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Those letters were common in that day. So in the first verses of chapter 3, Paul says, he seems to be saying letters of recommendation written with ink, whatever. I'd rather just have you be my witness that I shared with you the gospel and your life has changed. In harmony with this thinking, Paul turns the conversation to something really beautiful. And he says at verse 2, ready? To them. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of men. I don't need a letter of recommendation to tell these, this group over here who I am. You're a written epistle. You are our epistle. And this opens us up to a super important principle. May God be with us now as we enter deeply into it. According to Paul, actual people who came to Christ by virtue of his labors through faith were far more valuable than his epistles and some letter of commendation or introduction that were popular in that day. Having established this, I want you to listen to what Paul says next in verse 3. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, that's who you are, believers at Corinth, he says, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. That's a fulfillment in Paul's day of what God said he would do in that day. That's a fulfillment. God said, in that day, I will write upon the hearts. And Paul says right here, that is what you are. You have by the Spirit have written in your heart the fleshy tables. You have had God's law written upon you. He says, not in ink. So in Paul's day, we have a fulfillment of what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. For it is plain, it is obvious, he says, that you, believers at Corinth, recipients of this letter, are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ administered by us, the apostles. You are obviously a follower of Christ. In fact, he says, you're the epistle of Christ. 
We look at that, that, what we call the New Testament, open it up, and we call this is the epistle of Paul. This is the epistle of Peter. This is the epistle of John. And we say, this is, these are our apostles leading and guiding the church today so that we can be taken up by Christ when he comes to get us. And yet in Paul's day, he says, we've entered into the time when God writes upon the heart. I don't believe Paul ever anticipated that his letters to the people at Corinth were going to be mass-produced, copied, moved around to everybody in the world, and used as a New Testament, called a New Testament. He never, he never thought that. Why? Because God established what his New Testament was in the Old Testament. And this is my New Testament, he said. I will write my laws upon your heart. That's the New Testament. We have been looking at a false New Testament for thousands of years, for hundreds of years, because the New Testament is when God writes upon our heart. And when he writes upon our heart, we can love. Amen. But if he writes in ink and stone and paper and letters, we return to religion. And it's impossible for us to love each other then. Impossible. Let me prove the point. Epistole is you are a written message of Christ. Written. That's the New Testament written in the heart. This makes the point very clear. He says that this letter, listen, that both he delivered as an apostle and they were evidence of this, this gospel that they re received in their heart and it was not written with ink. Not written with ink. I suggest that this is a way of saying that they are not lifeless figures scrawled out on pages that will tear and fade, be retranslated, be pushed around, give us two separate uh, sources, the re re received text and the Westcott and Hort text and the Alexandrian text and two different types of Bible texts. He did not say that. He says, I will write on your, the fleshy table of the human heart of the people who are mine, you see. Paul compliments them here and he says, your, as epistles, are far more valuable. You are far more valuable than some letter of commendation that I have. What kind of value he tells us when he compares in a somewhat of a disparaging manner letters written with ink. This isn't letters written with ink, he says. He says, we want epistles living, written by the living God, by the Spirit. Now ask yourself, what is the most supreme power God has upon you as an individual in your life? The words of the apostles in that day, the apostolic record, written on paper, or the words of God written by his spirit upon your heart? We know the answer. We know it. Again, I am not demeaning what we call the New Testament written in, in paper. Uh, but I would suggest, I would emphatically suggest here and now they are absolutely inferior. Inferior, that's what I said, to the words written by the Holy Spirit on the hearts of those who are his. I can say this because Paul says this. I can say it because God said this. 
This will be my new covenant. I will write directly on the heart of those who are mine. That's what he says. Okay? That's the end goal of God. Is to be able to have that, that. I have written this on your heart. You are now in charge of my words on your heart. Now live by them. Be free to love those people you know you should love. You know that you should give them grace. You know that you should forgive them. You know that you should be Jesus to them like Jesus was to everybody. We know it. It's in us, but we say, wait, it can't be. I can't be that loving in this world. No, I have to look at my culture, look at my flesh, look at what is written by the apostles to that church then. And I have to say, we do this. We ostracize that. We excommunicate here. We do this. I have to do all that. I have to preach hell to them because that is the loving thing to do. I have to tell them you were never a Christian. I have to tell them that you're a heretic. I have to speak what's written in that book because that's far more important because that's what we call the New Testament instead of what God called his New Testament, which was writing his law upon the hearts of believers. We've gotten away from that for 2000 years. We have let men, mostly men, tell us this is what we go by, not what's on the heart, not disparaging what's written. I'm in it all the day of my life. I wouldn't have been able to come to this conclusion if it wasn't for those written texts. It's not that they don't inform us. It's not that they don't help us understand. But by God, they cannot become our New Testament. They are not our New Testament. The New Testament is love. And he writes it on our hearts. And when you take that book and make it your New Testament, you will act in opposition to that love. I guarantee it, because I have too. And so will you, and so does everybody. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, the writer of Hebrews says that God will say, and this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their mind, I will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them God, and they will be to a people. Those are God's people. He says it again in chapter 10, this is the covenant I will make with them in those days, saith the Lord, I will write my laws in their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. We have to note that in these places, God himself says, this is the covenant. This is the testament. Same word. This is the New Testament. This is the New Testament. Am I emphatic enough? This is the New Testament that I will write my laws upon their hearts and upon their minds. Tertullian, 200 years, Tertullian said, let's call the gathering of books that we're not sure, let's call them the New Testament. And from that point forward, that's what we think the New Testament is. What's written with ink that can be disputed, that will fade, that there are many copies of, that we can argue jot and tittle forever. That's, what we've, that's what's happened to us. But God has written his laws and on, upon our hearts and upon our minds. He himself, this is the covenant that I will make, he says. That I will make. You get it? What testament did God make? He said that once the former age of the old covenant was over. When was that? In 70 AD, 
the former covenant of that old age was absolutely obliterated. The priesthood shot to hell. The temple destroyed completely. They don't know their lineage. They don't know their heritage. They don't have a genealogy. There's no more priesthood. They were dis- the Jews were disseminated of that old, old covenant. 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered at that time. It was completely obliterated. So once the former age of the old covenant was wiped out, God would write on our hearts and minds. Now listen, laws written on stone and paper are impersonal to a certain extent. They require interpretation. They require deep analysis on the part of all readers with real consensus coming only from the Holy Spirit. But when God said he would write his laws directly upon the hearts and minds and that this would be the new covenant that he would give us, writing on the minds and hearts of his children, we are talking about a whole new level of relating to each other. A completely different level. It's the level I have sought my entire Christian life, my entire Mormon life, because I really did want this, but I didn't have the power to have it because I kept going back to what I was told was the way we are supposed to live it. We are supposed to go through the New Testament and do what they did when that was not the New Testament to begin with. I realize this breaks from conventions most Christians hold today. We must also realize that we wouldn't be able to have many of these arguments without that. So the writings again do help. So don't get me wrong. The written word, tremendous value. It's a fantastic tool and gift, but it's not the ultimate value in the world of faith today. In fact, this is what's really radical. What we allow ourselves to call the New Testament is not that at all. And we know this because the New Testament, the New Covenant, is not written with ink and paper. It's written by God on our hearts. So let me do this again. Read verse 3, chapter 3, 2 Corinthians. For as much, he says, that you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. It seems pretty apparent that Paul was referring to the Old Testament there. That's not what you are. You're not of that former covenant. You're of the new covenant that God talked about in Jeremiah 31. It had been engraved. Look, and, and so as, what happens as a result of the law written in stone, what happens as a result of any law written on paper that we go to is finger pointing and division and denominationalism. Look, it's right here. It says it right here. It says it, I believe it, and that's all there is to it, we say. Ignoring what God has written on our heart most of the time. Here we go, friends. This is where we have stood pretty much since the Protestant Reformation. All because we have made the laws written in ink and stone and called it our New Testament, and it has all inhibited our love. Now, that sounds like a worldly message. I'm pulling it straight from Scripture. This should not be. Not according to the words Paul shares here. Right here, he is clearly stating that precious source of God's laws will be in the fleshly tables of the heart. I can show you Mormons who love like no other from the heart. I can show you Catholics. I can show you Buddhists. I can show you Zen Buddhists. I can show you Hindus. I can show you Muslims. I can show you people who call themselves atheists. This does not do away with Christ Jesus. He's the over it all. He's the head of it all. But when we say you've got to conform to laws written in paper 
instead of the law of love written on heart by God in this New Testament, we have made a serious mistake in how we are assessing who, it's the difference, I shared this in Meet last week, it's like Pinocchio the the carved wooden figure versus Pinocchio the boy. That's the difference. We are puppeteering ourselves in each other according to the, the steps of how the finger should move instead of let God move us in living, in living scripture, living epistles. <coughs> dead words. Dead resources produce dead results. When God inscribes words that are living, his words are living, on a living human heart, that's not the actual beating muscle. It's talking about our mind, will, and emotion. When he writes upon that, we've got something good going on. How? First, no hand but the hand of God can reach into the human heart, the soul, the mind, and write love. We can try it, but it will always fail. You can't love like Christ unless God gives you the love of Christ. He writes it on you. You can fake it for a while. You can do it through religion, but it won't last. When he does it, that's when it starts to really live. Second, when written thereon, his words become animated and active and living. Third, when written by God into the heart of the mind and soul, they're permanent. They stay. They are with us. They abide especially as we continue to feed them by the Spirit and through the study of the written word. Where are the two Bibles that he, the two tablets he engraved upon on Sinai? Where are the, uh, the original manuscripts of anything that we call the New Testament? We don't have any of them. Nothing. There's a reason for that. Why do we have so many different manuscript evidences? Why has it taken us so long to get this Bible through the first 250 years and then another 1,500 years before people could read it or understand it or agree upon it? And then from 1,500 years to today, we still argue over it and we kill each other with it because it was never in the intention of God for it to be our New Testament. Never. We've let it become that. And when we do that, we cannot love the way Jesus loved from our hearts. Again, not to besmirch the gift. Now jump with me to verse six, because this is the, this is the death knell. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse six. This is Paul the apostle writing to them. He says, who, he's speaking of God there, also has made us, he's talking about himself as an apostle and others who are with him, also has made us, now listen to what he says, he, who, speaking of God, also has made us the apostles, Able ministers of the New Testament. Able ministers of the New Testament. Not of the letter. Not of the letter. Able ministers of the New Testament. What's the New Testament? It's when God writes on our hearts. Not of the letter, he reiterates. Why? He says, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit gives life. We've had sitting on this stage some of our areas, even some of the world's greatest lettermen of the Bible. They are lettermen. They know it. They have confronted me. And I sit there and I say, I don't get something that's not working here. I don't get your skill in the letter 
relative to this thing I know should exist. Something's wrong with all of your knowledge and information, Matt, my brother, Slick. Something's wrong with all of your knowledge and PhDs, brother White, James White. There's something disconnected here. I can't understand. I've never been able to understand it. Rob Bowman, skilled orators, Jason Wallace, know the word, have the law, have the word down on you. You are wrong. You're not a Christian. You're going to hell. And yet God has written in my heart an ability to love, to try to get over myself. Why do I have this impasse between my brothers who are so skilled in the word like they believe they're supposed to be, but they're lacking in that ability to love all people all the time, everywhere, without question? It's because the letter kills. We have killed each other with it. We do it all the time. And Facebook has really helped me come to see it. I just, I mean, I can't believe the things that Christians say to each other, citing scripture. It's like a machine gun war out there. I'm running for bullets from these people. It's unbelievable what we do with that law because the letter kills, but the spirit does not. The spirit gives life. You see the difference? Paul says that he was an able minister of the New Testament, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. The principles of that covenant and age were wrapping up, and this included God now writing laws upon those who were his on their minds and hearts. So I submit to you that the letters Paul wrote to them in that fading age were never intended to become laws to us. Even more so, I believe that now, in light of this. They were meant as a gift, a historical gift. I, from this point forward, will try very hard to never refer to that book as the New Testament. It's one of the things I want you to consider and walk away from. Whenever you speak of it, call it the apostolic record. Because that's what it is. It's the apostolic record. And when someone says, why do you keep calling it that? You say, well, the New Testament is when God writes his laws upon individuals' hearts. That's the New Testament. Do you believe in a New Testament? Oh, sure. Remarkably, devoutly believe in a New Testament. It's when he writes it on our hearts. It's what allows, give, put yourself in a situation. You go sit down in a, at a table, and there's a person on the other side of that table, and they have called themselves a Christian. They have stole from you. They stole your husband or your wife. They kicked your kid in the butt. They lied. They spread false rumors about you. They have admitted to thinking they're homosexual. They've said everything. They're just, you know. And you have a Bible in your hand. And you turn to the apostolic record. And you've decided you're going to approach them through that record. And you can go through, and I can guarantee you, you can use the content of that record to put them in their place. You have that option. But you know from all the teachings you get in church that we're supposed to love. And love is defined in chapter 13 as long-suffering, kind. It never fails. It doesn't boast of itself. 
It has a, there's a lot of descriptions there. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. All these different things. Temperance. Nothing about anger. Nothing about condemnation. Nothing about putting people in their place before God. None of that stuff's there. It's, love is described in a different way. So you're sitting there across the table, and you have an apostolic record in front of you, plus you have the Old Testament in front of you, and you can then address that person's problems with you, with it. What's the result? Now, suppose you're able to say, you know what, I am really going to go by what my desire is to really, truly, truly at this point, God help me, fill me with your spirit, love this person. You tell me. If in your life God says, let them have it, man, kick them to the curb and knock off the dust on your feet and swear them to hell, do it. Have at it, brother. I'll still love you. You can do it to me. But I just want to suggest that when I'm walking with God in the Spirit and my heart is full of what He wants me to do, it would be to say to that person, I forgave you already. I love you. You mean something to me. Jesus loves you. That's between you and God on what you're going to do with all these things that have happened. But I am going to die to myself. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to give my life for you. I'm going to give my heart for you. That is what is written on my heart. And that's what God tells me to do from that position. And in that little example that you can do yourself, and I challenge you to do it yourself when you're confronted with somebody like that, is you just say, what does my heart, not your flesh, what does that invisible mind, will, and emotion want to do as a person who has received Christ Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life? I would suggest that if you go that latter route, you will see that the things I'm talking about now are right. Not just because God said it in Jeremiah, not just because Paul validates it, but because it actually can be known by what God has written on your heart. L written things, we've proved it here, produces anger, hatred, division, judgment, condemnation, death. If everybody in this room had God's laws written on their heart, and, and God's laws were really glowing like a neon sign, someone could come in here and they could take a gun out and threaten somebody. And most of us would probably just be like, you don't need to do that. Calm down. It's okay. We love you. We know you're angry. We would respond to it the way Jesus would respond to it. You know? If we wanted to go the old covenant way or what we are calling the new covenant, if we wanted to go that route, yeah, we'd go to self-defense mode. Jesus said you could have two swords. We'd go that mode. But if we went by the heart, we could handle any situation as long as we were all going that way because the letter killeth. Remember I said that the letters written on stone and in paper are dead letters? It's because the letter killeth. The letters will always kill the Spirit of God, which bears the fruit of love, which always bears the fruit of love. It's that love I have longed to possess, to possess, and I haven't allowed myself to do it because I've wanted to be dutiful to God. I've wanted to assign his word to my life. When I was a Mormon, it was the old covenant. 
When I became a Christian, it was the, what we call the new covenant. Both of them led to death, as manifested in the words I share with people on air and publicly who confront me and do things to me that I think deserve a rash rebuke. What would be the result if today you walked out and you, did, you decided to fully start to try to live by that? What he has written on your heart. See, the thing about that too is every single believer is now responsible to God. He knows what he wrote on your heart. And he knows whether you possess those words in your uh, soul, mind, will, and emotion or not. And so when you die and go to him, you're not going to be able to say, well, I never really was able to read the book of Acts because every time I got it, my kid had eaten those pages and I got a new Bible and someone stole it. So I couldn't read Acts and I didn't. No, no, no. He's going to say, I wrote it on your heart. I wrote what you, what you were supposed to do. You knew. We don't like that. So we go to the easier approach, right? The spirit's superior always to the letter. That's the point. And how and why the letter kills is obvious through a bunch of explanations, but the Spirit gives life. How far astray we've wandered through the tutelage of men. They have taken liberties and established another New Testament. They've established another testament written in letters, written in stone, actually. Pulverized wood that works against the central principles that God wants in those who are His. Again, that work against the central principles, unless you take them by the Spirit and understand their purpose. We've been killing each other ever since. Doesn't our history of the apostles' record make sense now? That God would not have those letters available for hundreds of years to people? That all the people that 1 Corinthians describes as being the broken and the, the lost and the downcast and the weak of the world, they didn't need to be strong academically. They never had to be because they didn't need letters of scholarship and education to be able to read the darn thing. God was working through them in a completely different way. It was men who were orchestrating this encyclopedia and trying to put it together that we have to follow sola scriptura, they called it in 1530 or 1550. Sola scriptura, which took what was sort of a united body, sort of, and blew it out to 20, 30,000 different views when God has all along given us that, that view that says, just love each other, man. Hey, I'm this, I'm that, love you. I've done this to you, love you. God wants me to love you. That's how he's operated from the beginning. The really interesting fact is that Tertullian got the idea of calling the collection of books of the apostolic writings of the New Testament from Jeremiah 31. Because that's where God says, I will give a New Testament. And he said, well, we call this the Tanakh, the Jewish Tanakh, the Old, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. God says, and after that day, he's going to give us a New Testament. So he said, let's call the collection of books the New Testament. Forgetting how God described what that New Testament would look like. That simple little forgetting that he would write it on the hearts instead of with letters that kill. The past 1,800 years, folks, we have allowed the letters to kill us. I am convinced of it. Maybe I'm wrong. I always have to admit that. 
But I use the Bible to show you what the New Testament really is. You have to decide if you want to believe that or not. You, want, you have to decide if you want to be radical enough to never call that the New Testament, but to call it the apostolic record or the apostolic writings or the ancient writer, whatever you want to call it. But the New Testament, if you're a Christian, has been written on your heart. And the commandment of the New Testament is to have faith in God through Christ and to love. That's why we can summarize it down. There's room to write that. There's enough room. We carry it with us everywhere we go. I never understood why I couldn't reach my brothers uh, like I named. Or, or I didn't understand why I couldn't accept pastors who were doing things in other churches that were in opposition to the written letters. So because they were in opposition to them, I chose to attack them using the written letters to justify my position. I can't do that anymore. I won't do it anymore, ever again. I pray that within the sound of my voice today, that we'll take the floaties off, so to speak. I got grandsons. You have kids, you know what floaties are. It's these things you put on so you can go to the deep water or even get in the water itself. And that you take off the floaties and you inspire yourself to get into the, the water of love and remove those letters that will cause you to kill and hate and attack. I repent before God, especially before you guys who watch campus and who are here and considering this. And the two things I hope you'll walk away with is we can love all people all the time, always. We have that in our capacity because God has given it to us by writing that on us. We can do it through the Spirit. And that you might consider never referring to that, that collection of books that are such a gift to us as the New Testament anymore, because it's not. Questions, comments, please share, if anything. To Liz, then back to, who's, who's running this? Hey. Hi, this is Liz. It's very interesting that you should um, come, uh, you know, bring this out this week, I think, because for me, um, the timing is perfect. I had kind of a falling out with a family member, and uh, sorry, I had a falling out with a family member this week, um, and I had a, another family member and a close friend kind of put to me, um, well, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy or, you know, what is truly the right thing to do? Is it being right as you see it, you know, as we are often want to do? Or is it loving, loving that family member? I mean, is it worth, you know, a horrible relationship kind of a thing? And this is what truly makes the most sense. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I don't know, maybe even more so to me coming from the background that I did of, you know, being raised LDS and coming out of that uh, religion in the last several years. Um, yeah, it, well done in your timing. Thanks, Liz. There are, there are Christian books and things that say we love Mormons, and, uh, and I've been part of the attack too, but I would suggest if we love Mormons, love them. Love the Mormons. You can share truth, always share truth. You know, always the truth. 
but you love them completely. And that means you include them in as your own. You love them, you know? We put up with each other, you put up with them. Carla. Do I have to push anything or can you hear me? Please don't, Carla, with a K. I love you, Sean. I, I think you know that. Um, I know you know that. This lesson was so timely for me and was so wonderful and I agree with everything that you said. But um, I believe I have come to learn that I guess the Aborigine and the people before the Old Testament, hey, they weren't saved because they didn't have the Old or the New Testament. And I believe that the law was written on their heart for those that, that those that believe in whoever he was, even if they didn't know his name at that time. And I want us all to just stop and think about how we feel when we feel that complete love and how happy we are inside when we feel that. And I have felt that in my heart today. Thank you so much. Thank you, my sister. What a great point. We have an answer now. The new, they didn't need to hear Jesus' name from the, new, from the apostolic record to speak it. God wrote on their heart. We trust him. Wonderful example. Thank you, Carla. Applause from Ken for Carla. Anybody else? Patrick is roaming. Oh, Lisa, can't wait to hear. God, you made it. Did your daughter bring you? Right to me. Okay. Uh, my name is Lisa. Um, love the teaching. Love the teaching. And it, for me, it's kind of the same thing as, as the other two women were talking about. It's very timely. Um, one of my challenges I have with this, of course, yeah. is that it's, it's something that wow, I have to now forgive, you know? And, um, you know, I've had a lot of issues happen just recently with me, and wow, I have to love that person. And that's part of my challenge, you yes. know? As, as she was saying, there's this part of this challenge that it's great, you can talk about it, but now you really have to drink it in and actually do it, yeah. you know? Because there's that, that intellectual, that intellectual thinking about it yeah. and then actually the doing of it yeah. so um yeah so i i loved it i love what you're saying and now i have to take it in and go okay i've got to practice it now practice darn <laughs> I, it i gotta practice it yeah. will you do us a favor we've been praying for you and uh will you tell us about uh, lisa is the one who uh just tell us what you were diagnosed with and where you are now Oh, you bet. Uh, well, I was diagnosed with terminal cancer in um, uh, October of 2017. They gave me six months to live. Uh, I had um, uh, terminal cancer, uh, tumors on my bladder, liver, breasts, um, lymph nodes, lungs, and then I had some major ones on my spine, which rendered me paralyzed. Um, and um, just through the powers of, we, as you were talking about the healing, there's a difference between everybody says, oh, you're a miracle. It's like, no, I'm, you're right. It's, it's the healing part. Um, through power of prayer, uh, through people just 
as I was always saying, please, you know, don't feel sorry for me. Give me this this power to either overcome or to go where I know where I'm to go back home. You know, it's it's a win-win no matter what. Um, so in uh, April of 2018, um, well, I had some radiation done to shrink a tumor on my spine that should and did help me to regain my legs, and I'm still kind of uh, working with that. Um, but um, they also gave me, I refused any other type of treatments, but they did give me um, some hormone blockers. And in April of 2018, all my cancer was gone. Everything. Wow. Yeah. Everything. Because what? So now, so it's it's I'm I'm praising God for that, and now I the next phase, which is actually that was the easy part. The recovery part is the sucky part, <laughs> you know, of everything coming back and just people still praying for me and you know moving forward and just kind of the same thing is like you know all through everything I started seeing I need to love other people and biggest thing, trust in God. He in believing God and it's he will get you through. He's he and he has with me. You're and I'm not any any type of particular great person or anything. You know, it's wow. just it's for everyone. Praise God. Thank you so much, Lisa. That encourages us all. Praise God, that's quite a modern day miracle. <laughs> uh I lost my mother two days ago and uh, a lot of thoughts and emotions run <clears throat> but I'd like to point out it's uh, takes a lot of bravery to watch your mother go through that so lean on God that's where the comes from the brave the comfort but uh, to what you were talking about the biggest difference in what's written in your heart and what's written on ink is man uh, messed that up pretty good there's no leaning on it in the purest sense of the word. How do we know? But if you've had God write his word on your heart, and I testify I have, there is no denying that. No. And, and it teaches nothing. It brings nothing. It shares nothing but love. Yeah. Amen, brother. Amen. Thank you so much. Anybody else? And Danny. We should end on that. All that is great. Um, but I do appreciate the teaching myself. I've always wondered, um, as I've been online and I've read a lot of books, uh, these people who have become, that have letters um, attached to their names, PhDs or Masters of Divinity, or, you know, it's pretty important to them. And they become modern day scribes and Pharisees in my eyes. And I try not to judge them like that because they're part of the body. Mm -hmm. But then I look at myself and I see three, well, I have two letters from, from the university, which is a BS. And the other one, <laughs> and the other one is uh, three letters, which is, you know, E-G-O, it's ego, <laughs> which follows me around, is attached to me. And so I have to constantly remind myself to not judge and to love and it's a struggle but it's it's important it's always been on my mind just like that because you know the ego represents edging God out and that's what he what it does in my life that pride mm. 
you know, uh, pushes the faith and the love out of my life. So I appreciate you teaching this and reminding us all what's love important. Love that. Thanks, Danny. Jason? Just a quick thought. It's kind of, uh, to me, uh, um, self-evident when you stop and realize how universal love is and how quickly people will respond to it. And it doesn't have to be based on a religion or a culture or any written, as, you've, as you're putting it, any written word at all. People understand it and they respond to it. But yet in my life, if I struggle so much to try to attach a, a Christian message when I'm trying to portray love, and I don't get the response out of people when I try to do that. Yeah. But if I'm just simply trying to love them, there's, a, there's an instantaneous response to that. Isn't it beautiful? And it's, it's in all of us. Praise God. Love that. Okay, let's pray and get out of Dodge. Uh, Lord, we uh, thank you for your spirit. We pray it will lead in the ways that... Uh, that we will hear it and move with it. We're grateful for the comments that were made and the insights and uh, so thankful that uh, we're able to recognize that you do write love on our heart and that it is a universal language and that it's understood by people of all languages and all, all walks. And we just pray that we can exit here possessing more of an ability to hear and read the words you've written in us and uh, respond to them like Lisa talked about. The difficulty now is in the practice. So help us to use your spirit. Help us to re, uh, read your word that reminds us of how much you loved us that you gave us your only human son. Let us use the tools you've given us. But always remember that it's all about this love like Ken talked about it's, and, and, and Jason. It's all about this love. And uh, with every person we interact with by this will we be known as your disciples and I you know because I, I lead the teaching in the group and I'm, I'm a spokesman for the ministry in many ways I just publicly apologize to you God I repent with tears not visible for the things I have said and done uh, in the zeal of my heart thinking that it was righteousness yes there there can be good effects and yes things do happen but the righteousness of God does not, uh, the, right, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That is your word. And so I just want to humble.